0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, your cyber place and cyberspace. I am back in Jersey City, in the great state of New Jersey, in Studio A, After a couple of weeks from Studio T on the Upper West Side of of Manhattan, I'm here, back. We have made it through our second COVID lockdown. Thanks again to Alan and Ruth and everyone here at the station for making that possible for for me to broadcast from home. But I am happy to be back. Thanks for joining me this evening. We're going to be talking about Twitter this evening. But before I dive into that, I want to say something about last week's show. If you listened to last week's show, if you didn't listen, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, it was it, it was uh, a show about walking, of all things. I interviewed National Geographic Explorer Paul Salopek who is over nine years into a walking journey around the world. When he is complete, uh, when he has completed the journey, uh, he is... Uh, He's planning to have walked twenty-four thousand miles in total, which is thirty-eight thousand kilometers. And I don't know if he's halfway or or a third of the way or something, but he's he he has made it from Ethiopia to China. And um, we had a good conversation about walk. What what does it mean to walk at five kilometers an hour for thousands of miles in an age where digital technology and other high-tech uh, platforms like cars and highways are all conspiring to speed us up. A constant social acceleration, as we've talked to, on the show about before. And what, what Paul Salopek is doing is really, uh, and I don't know if he would call it this, but I see it as an act of resistance against the technological society. He is demanding that he at least stay with healthier Uh, patterns of life and community. Anyway, it has a a lot to teach us. That interview, I think, has a lot to teach us in the context of our ongoing tectonic exploration of how technology is affecting us and what we can do to to try to resist and and live a healthy life, both individually and as communities. In the midst of that interview with Paul Salopek, on the comment board, which is going on right now as I speak at WFMU.org. Just go to WFMU.org and click playlist and comments and you'll see the comment board. We had an hour long discussion on the comment board last week that uh, was mostly focused on walking journeys. And I gotta tell you, Tectonic listeners are so literate. They're so smart, they're so well read. (laughs) I'm continually impressed. We had Uh, a a wide variety of books and a couple of documentary movies as well on the topic of walking journeys. And uh, we have had shows in the past where we have had a bunch of recommendations of books and movies. And as we've done in the past, I have a little surprise for you. If you haven't looked at the playlist yet, you really should take a look because listener and friend of the show, David in London, put together one of his trademark uh, really clever and sharp infographics for us <laughs> that is presenting the contents of the of the comment board from last week for your delectation. You can take a look at it again. Go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, and um, David has has titled this "A Walk on the Wild Side," and you can click on it and see it in uh, in zoom in all of its zoomed in glory. And I've even put a link to. a a CSV file formatted data, if you would like to take the data and make your own infographic of last week's recommendations. But anyway, thanks to David in London, there's a bunch of books and a couple of documentaries that we all need to go and read and watch and we can continue our own journey of, of learning here on Tectonic from our uh, guests and from each other on the comment board. By the way, if you're listening in the future, you can find that playlist by going to tectonic.fm. That's T-E-C-H tonic.fm. It's a one-page site with a bunch of uh, links to different shows, past shows of Tectonic, and you can find the the playlist for last week's show with Paul Salopek. This week, however, is a completely different topic. We're not talking about... Slow, thoughtful, reflective, community-oriented walking journeys around the world. No, we are talking about (laughs) something different straight out of Silicon Valley. Twitter has been purchased, or at least the terms of a purchase deal have been reached by a buyer and the board of Twitter, the corporation. And, of course, the buyer is the richest person in the world. His name is Elon Musk. We've talked about Musk a number of times in past shows. You may know him from Tesla. You may know him from The Boring Company. You may know him from his, uh, his turn on Saturday Night Live, boosting different cryptocurrencies, and then joking about it later. Um, how about Starlink, where he wants to put up thousands and thousands and thousands of tiny little satellites that are, gonna, that are already beginning to blot out uh, astronomers' view of the night sky. Uh, But his latest latest stunt is to buy Twitter or, again, uh, begin the process of buying Twitter. Uh, We're going to be talking this hour about the purchase of Twitter, uh, Musk buying Twitter. And, of course, I know technically it hasn't gone through yet, but we're just going to use that as a shorthand instead of saying every time Musk's plan to buy Twitter, which has been approved by the Twitter board and terms have been reached and so on and so forth. The magic number, it turns out, is $44 billion. And why, <laughs> why, where do we start with this? Well, first, let me give you a heads up. We are going to be going to an interview here in just a couple of, of minutes. I am going to welcome back to the show Paul Bradley Carr, author of the novel 1414 Degrees, uh, and also a longtime journalist in Silicon Valley. He was on the show. Back in December, I will put a link to the playlist so you can uh, listen to that show uh, at your leisure, and, and I do recommend his novel 1414 Degrees. Um, Paul Bradley Carr has written a number of very uh, interesting and important pieces about his own process of getting off of Twitter, and we're going to dive into that and uh, why he decided to get off of Twitter and what some of the outcomes have been for him after he's gotten off of Twitter. Before we dive into the conversation, let me just set a little bit of context. And let me say, you know, I am not a mergers and acquisitions specialist, so I can't give you the specialist knowledge, but I can just give you my read of the situation. First of all, when we began hearing a couple of weeks ago that Musk was thinking of buying Twitter, uh, the press was full of these accounts of this thing called the poison pill which uh, was supposed to be the strategy where the Twitter board would resist the purchase by Elon Musk by, I I don't know, something about flooding the market with, with new shares of Twitter. And so it would dilute uh, the hold that he would have on the company and would make it difficult for him to acquire it. Well, after all of these articles about the poison pill, a few days later, they turn around and they say, okay, you got it. You got yourself a deal done. $44 billion done. And so one question I have is, why the quick turnaround why did the twitter board agree for the the world's richest man uh, who has a well you'll hear in my interview with paul bradley carr there are some good reasons to doubt uh whether it's a really good idea for for musk to take over this company why did they turn around from that poison pill idea so so swiftly i think and again you can correct me if i'm wrong or if you have other sources i'm not a specialist but just my own amateurish uh, conclusion is I think they accepted the deal because Twitter is not worth $44 billion. I think that's the, I think that's the, the super secret finding that probably, uh, came up in the board discussions. He's offering what he's offering $44 billion? Is this guy nuts we're not worth 44 billion dollars get rid of it get rid of it now while the offer's still on the table (laughs) so i think that twitter is is probably not worth anything near 44 billion dollars and so they're unloading it then the question is well then if it's not worth that why would elon musk offer to pay 44 billion dollars and there's who can guess anything about why elon musk does anything and whether he means anything that he says uh, he's, he's very hard to pin down on when he's being genuine, when he is pranking people, when he is being actively deceptive, uh, uh, and when he's just uh, grandstanding. It's hard to tell. But possibly he just – he has so much money. It's an unfathomably large sum of money at his disposal. And it just doesn't mean anything to him anymore. $44 billion is is nothing. Oh, I sneezed. A billion dollars came out. So, yeah, sure, here, have $44 billion. I really want this toy or megaphone or platform for my self-aggrandizement. I really, really, really want it. Give it to me now. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that you learn from, uh, from people who work with the, the ultra-wealthy is that the ultra-wealthy, they do not like to hear one particular word. No, that's a word that they don't like to hear. And someone says, no, Musk, you can't have Twitter. What do you mean I can't have it? I'm going to have it. And I think that was the thinking uh, that prompted uh, Eli Grober, who who writes over at McSweeney's, to write one of my favorite pieces, one of my favorite analyses of the Musk purchase of Twitter um, was, a, w- 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 was a comedy piece. And this, this came out on McSweeney's on April 26th. This is linked from the playlist at WFMU.org if you'd like to read it. But I'll just read this excerpt. It starts in the following way. Hi there, I'm Elon Musk. I'm mostly known for rockets and cars, but what I really care about is free speech. I can't get enough of it. In fact, I like free speech so much, I've decided to buy it. That's right. It turns out free speech isn't free. It costs exactly $44 billion. That might sound like too much money for one person to be allowed to spend, but that's only because it is. And I've decided free speech is worth the cost. I'm gonna make sure some board full of rich guys doesn't get to define what counts as free speech. Instead, just one rich guy will get to decide what counts as free speech, me. And it goes on from there. And I thought that was uh, probably as good a guess into Elon Musk's internal state as uh, anything in the non-comedic news that we might come across. And uh, if I have time, I may get into a couple of the other links that I have posted on the playlist at WFMU.org. But I wanna go ahead and get to Paul Bradley Carr. Again, he's uh, author of the novel 1414 Degrees, which is a dark comedy of Silicon Valley. It's a murder mystery and um, you can go back in the archives or, or go to tectonic.fm and find my uh, interview with Paul Bradley Carr about his novel. This time we're gonna be talking about his reactions to Elon Musk purchasing Twitter. Let's go ahead and listen to the interview now with Paul Bradley Carr here on Tectonic on WFMU. Paul Bradley Carr, welcome back to Tectonic.
1: I am so happy to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me back. A rare time I get invited back to something. (laughs)
0: Well, I am happy that you're back on Tectonic. You were on the show just a few months ago talking about your novel 1414 Degrees, which I quite enjoyed, and listeners can go back into the WFMU archives and listen to that whole interview. But I wanted to bring you back in part because of something happening with your novel, which we'll talk about later, but primarily to talk with you about Twitter and Elon Musk's purchase announcement. Now, I want to say that you and I are recording this on Tuesday, April 26, 2022. So if anything transpires around this deal or it gets canceled... It's possible
1: the world has already ended. It's possible people are hearing this from their bunkers. This is the last broadcast that will reach them before (laughs) the end of the world.
0: I sure hope that's not the case, but if it is, we can give a (laughs) a sprightly snapshot of the world and the online world on Tuesday, April 26th. So let's talk about Twitter. The reason I wanted to talk to you, Paul, is because you have been doing a bang-up job on your email newsletter, which I'll I'll put a link on the playlist for listeners to subscribe to that. You're doing a great job, and you called it. Let me just say you called it on April 7. You wrote a, a newsletter post called Twitter to the Loon, (laughs) And that was when it was just beginning to look like Elon Musk might actually try to buy Twitter. It's very early stage. And you started the newsletter by saying, I'm out. I hard deleted my verified account on Tuesday morning and also the two-factor authentication, so I can't reactivate it, even if I wanted to. I'm a recovering addict, and I know when something is dangerously unhealthy. I was really struck by that. Because you had used Twitter a lot, you had a lot of followers. You have a new book out, and you completely deleted your Twitter account. And this is before the purchase. So tell me, what went into that decision?
1: I mean, it's it's you just read the the sort of the key quote there, uh, which is, "I know in my gut from." Um, people listening probably don't know. I I was for a long time, an alcoholic. I've been sober for 10 years and I wrote a book about getting sober. Um, but one of the things that I know is when something is unhealthy and dangerous, it's a good defense mechanism to sort of be able to identify quite quickly. This environment is going sideways. I'm out. And it just seemed to me, I mean, now people listening to this post deal, um, I'm not the only one saying this by by my long chalk. Um, it is so obvious that what Elon Musk has in, pla- uh, has in store for Twitter, what he plans for Twitter is to turn it into, he he uses phrases like free speech in the same way as a lot of um, Republicans use that language. A lot of MAGA people use that language to mean the freedom for rich, uh, trollish white men. Uh, rich is really the key word there. Um, to be able to say whatever they want and to be able to shout down critics, be able to encourage hate speech and or or at least in, uh, ignore hate speech, encourage trolling, that kind of stuff. Um, it's not free speech. Free speech would be um, to allow critics to flourish of those rich people. whereas we all know that how tech billionaires treat uh, treat critics is to is to silence them is to turn their mob armies against them and all the rest of it. This, it's not a question of free speech. it's a question of the exact opposite. it's a question of free speech for people who are already incredibly powerful. At the cost of um, free speech for everybody else, it's it's obvious. I mean it's 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 exact. it's obvious. Twitter's not a good business to get into. It's not like Elon has said, well, I think what I should own is electric cars, the moon, and Twitter. Like the one of those things is not like the other when it comes to financial uh, economic opportunities. What he wants to do is make sure that people criticizing those first two things are silenced or or shouted down by mobs of people. Um, who support people like Elon Musk. Um, we're going to see a lot of sort of MAGA folks who got removed from Twitter for massive and clear violations of their policies are all going to come back. Donald Trump has said he's not going to come back, which makes it pretty obvious he is, um, <laughs> because that's how we know what he's going to do is to listen to what he says and assume the opposite. It's going to just be a a, a mess. And it it seems so obvious to me. It seems like we all need to just get out of there as fast as we possibly can before it turns into just this crypto libertarian trollish maga like words i can't use on a on a radio show frankly
0: yeah i would just add something that i've said a bunch on the show which is that it's not so much the political stripe that elon musk represents in this case more on the right I don't really think this is a left versus right battle. It's exactly what you said, Paul. It's the amount of power and money and influence that Musk and his other billionaires have that's the real threat. We have seen, historically, examples that give a good reason why you and I and others would be worried. One comes straight out of 1414 Degrees, in fact. The epigraph of the book, it starts with a direct quote from an Uber executive threatening your partner, Sarah Lacey, because of legitimate journalism and investigation that she had done on Uber's practices. Um, This executive publicly threatened her and your kids if she continued doing her work.
1: Yeah. um, This this Uber executive and others at Uber threatened our family because Sarah in particular dared to speak out about their treatment of women. The lack of irony is, or understanding of irony is just incredible.
0: That's the water that that people drink in Silicon Valley, at least these these incredibly powerful billionaires. The other example that comes to mind, and you may have others, is the example of the Thai cave rescue a few years back Mm -hmm. when Elon Musk made a big deal about this submarine that he was going to send down there To rescue these kids in a cave that was, they were not trapped only by water. I mean, they would. (laughs) A submarine that needs portage is not a great solution. And one of the rescuers who was there pointed this out. And Elon Musk then went online uh, asserting that this cave rescuer was a pedophile.
1: I mean, it's. This is again free speech. Uh, yeah, that's in, free speech. In the style Elon of Musk. in the style of Elon Musk. I mean, it's this um, cave rescuer, this heroic cave rescuer, had the temerity to point out that Elon's attention, headline grabbing solution, would not actually help affect the rescue of these children, and that in Elon's mind, made him fair game for any attack possible, and he just surmised, just 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 threw out on Twitter well, this guy lives in Thailand, so it's fair to assume, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's fair to assume that he must therefore be a child abuser. It was, it was the sort of thing you expect a child, like a, a teenage idiot to say to his friends in a park, and here is the richest man on the planet saying it as fact, or as, and, and he repeated it, doubled down on it, on, on a massive social network, and now we think him owning that network is in some way going to make the discourse better. It's almost, I find it very difficult because I feel like everything I'm saying is so obvious. It seems so obvious to me that this is terrible for free speech. It seems so obvious to me that this is terrible for the universe. It seems so obvious to me that we're going to see this influx of white nationalists, white supremacists, bigots and everything else pouring into Twitter now. I mean, they're already celebrating. They're sort of dancing in the streets of, of all the places that these people congregate about the prospect of Trump and others coming back it just seems so obvious this is going to happen and, and anybody taking the counter position of saying uh, you know arguing that this isn't accurate I don't know how to respond to them it's so obvious this is what's going to happen and and it's so obvious anybody saying it isn't going to happen is quite excited by the prospect that it, that it is
0: either that or they're just incredibly optimistic about the benefits that technology is just about to deliver to us. (laughs) The trouble
1: is I'm seeing lots of people who understand technology very, very well. Many people who run companies who have built these things expressing the same terror and panic. This is not just a conversation that's happening amongst those of us who are critics. This is a a conversation that's happening inside Twitter. This is a conversation, as in the company. This is a conversation that's happening. I'm, I'm talking to people I know who are very, very influential and successful tech people. I'm not just somebody who mixes with sort of leftist opponents of the internet this is this is something that everybody who is not disingenuous understands what his motivations are for doing this yes and we all know how it ends this is i it's so uncontroversial that this is what's going to happen but unfortunately what we're discussing here is is potentially the end of democracy so it's sort of at the same time so unbelievable that you have to believe it can't be happening but it is it's going to happen that's what we're all watching happen
0: I know that when Trump was active on his Twitter account, and this was something that CEO at the time, Jack Dorsey, was in favor of. I mean, Dorsey met with Trump at the White House and mm-hmm. made no moves for a long, long time to restrict Trump's activity. That was a threat to democracy. And uh, we ended up with January sixth, in which we came very close to having a, a real political rupture due to the insurrection there. And now we have Musk, who reminds me of Trump in a lot of ways in his behavior and his attitude and his self-aggrandizement. Do you think that Musk himself is a threat to democracy in the way that Trump was?
1: Um, hmm. I mean, yes, obviously. Uh, I mean, he, he wants to bring these people back onto Twitter. Ergo, he is a threat to democracy. He I, you know, I'm not sure he's going to be, he was, I mean, he wasn't at January, the January 6th insurrection himself. It's not like he's, he's a slightly different sort of category of threat. I, no, I think he's, you know, he's one of these people who wants to watch the world burn. He's incredibly successful and insulated from any possible harm here, which is good. I don't wish any harm on anybody, but he's, he's insulated from any consequences of his, his decision-making. And so he can, rile up this base and he can do what he thinks is probably just a big fun game of riling up these sort of right wingers. And I think he just sees it all as a big joke. You know, that said, his politics are the, the politics of a lot of rich people. He doesn't want to pay any taxes and he doesn't want any laws telling him what he can do. And he wants to support the people telling him that trolling the world is 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 good and allowed. So I think the, the outcome of it is indistinguishable. It's all part of the same. And Jack Dorsey is the same. I mean, this is the he said Jack Dorsey made no moves. Well, that's Jack Dorsey's modus operandi is to do nothing brave. Whatever the brave thing to do is, he will sit there and watch someone else do it. I mean, Twitter was founded by these sort of three milk toasts who four, I'm sorry, three and three milk toasts and one that people haven't heard of, whose whole policy was to sit back and not do anything and to be terribly conflict averse. And so letting Trump stay on the platform wasn't this big stand for free speech or against free speech or anything of the sort. It was this terror that, you know, like the dinosaur's eyesight is based on movement. So if they stay very, very still um, and don't take out the flashlights. And it was only when Jan 6 happened and we were obviously days away from Trump no longer being president that Jack Dorsey makes his bold stand against. I mean, for goodness sake if that's the moment if that's the only time you can find your courage is after everybody else has already done it for you right then then it's not called courage anymore and and i think now we're seeing dorsey and others sort of saying oh no this this is great that elon's buying twitter because they have to because to say anything else would would invite attacks from these mobs so they are just saying the safe thing which is great excellent this is good for free speech (laughs) it's 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 maddening i mean Twitter has been dangerous for a very long time, but at least there were, there were checks and balances inside the company. And, the, you know, it being a public company meant there was some pressure for them to, to not act like, to not just be completely reckless. And, and that is now about to go away. So, I mean, that's all I can muster is that sigh. I don't know, because what else am I going to say? We can't stop it. And it's going to happen.
0: Well, I do have to compliment you on your Jack Dorsey impression. It is excellent.
1: No, unfortunately, I gave him slightly too much personality. Um, <laughs> more, if we could just get some sort of room tone, that would be more of a more of an impression. No, the man whose whose biggest political statement was to wear a T-shirt that said hashtag #Woke and then do absolutely nothing while Donald Trump used his platform to foment an insurrection. I mean, well done, Jack.
0: Well, he did say once that. Um, I think he made an announcement in December of one year when he was CEO that he was going to spend the next year in Africa, and <laughs> that's how and he was, he was gonna... doing yoga in Myanmar.
1: I mean, good Lord, Jack! I mean, I it, no, he'd be funny. He'd be a funny character if you wrote if you made him up. But unfortunately, he exists and has got us into this mess. Like it's really, you know, this what, whatever that phrase is about good men doing nothing. I mean, he's just a piece of bread doing nothing. And yet somehow we're all heading towards the abyss. I'm sorry, Mark, I'm not bringing a lot of joy to this show.
0: No, but there's... I I should do a
1: song or something, cheer everyone up.
0: We will all go together when we go. (laughs) There's a certain uh, dry British humour in your remarks that I appreciate. There is some, I I do find some humour in it. I also... And you have to,
1: because what else are you going to do? I mean, it's... (laughs) if you don't smile about it, if you don't, if you, you I feel like Eric Idle on the the cross at the end of, of, um, life of Brian, Brian. don't worry, give a whistle. I mean, that's it really. We're, We're all doomed.
0: And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, your host. We are halfway through my interview with, novelist and journalist Paul Bradley Carr. He's talking with me about his reactions to Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. And uh, if you're interested in seeing the links to Paul's writing, I've posted them on the playlist at wfmu.org. Click playlist and comments. You can also see a link to our previous tectonic interview about his uh, novel 1414 Degrees. We spoke back in November of 2021 and uh, again if you're listening in the future you can find that playlist at tectonic.fm t-e-c-h tonic.fm and this is the May 2nd 2022 episode let's go ahead and listen to the second part of my interview with Paul Bradley Carr talking about Musk and Twitter here on Tectonic on WFMU I want to give a, a shout-out to your April 13 column in your newsletter called Elon and On. And this had a nice <laughs> phrase in it, which you just said some of it before. You wrote, this is proof of what inevitably happens when the world's most powerful, quote, free speech platform was founded by a gaggle of conflict-averse milk toasts." <laughs> yep. And here we have it. And look, in, in my opinion— the basic problem, the basic problem in Twitter's architecture is that they run everything through the rage and hate amplifier called the algorithm. And everyone runs around saying, I wonder what we should do to tone down on the, the rage and hate that's being amplified. I, I wonder what it could be. And they walk right past the amplifying algorithm right at the center of the business model. And when you point out, as I have in this show, why don't you just get rid of the algorithmic amplification? And they go, oh no, 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 we can't do that. That's that's the business. But what else could we do? And the conflict-averse milk toasts, as you say, Paul, have done nothing. They were just determined to do absolutely nothing.
1: Well, it's it's a biz. I mean, the thing is, as you said, the business is the algorithm, and the algorithm is the business. The idea of I've I've said for a very long time that when Silicon Valley says something's too hard, what it means is they don't want to do it. Because you never hear them say going to the moon is too hard. You never hear them say that that giving you know sending the internet by hot air balloon to sub-Saharan Africa is hard. You never hear them say that. They just say that you know diverse hiring is hard and filtering Nazis off their platforms are hard. And it, what they mean is they don't want to do it. And the thing is, we you know we let's say critics of this of this uh, sort of algorithm culture go blue in the face, screaming, well, just stop with the algorithmic promotion of hate. It's, it's quite straightforward. Don't push this stuff out. Let it naturally find its level, which is underground. Right. And un- below the, you know, well, you'd only drive it underground. Good. I don't see right. it when it's underground. <laughs> that's better than it being overground. Like I don't want it to be underground either. It's kind of like worms. It's like, well, you'll just drive them underground. I'm like, well, that's a start. That's right. Um, And so I, to me, the point is they don't want to do it because the algorithm engagement, <sighs> conflict is engagement. Uh, that's the point. And engagement is the metric that matters. The metric that matters is how many people are coming to our platforms, how many times they're engaging every day, because that's what we sell to advertisers. Conflict equals engagement. I've said this, I think, before, I may have even said it on your show, but when, when two people are having a nice conversation, it's very easy for one of them to say, well, this was nice. I'm going to go now. When two people are having an argument, they cannot let it go. And that's the point of these algorithms is you get people into an argument and they will never be able to let it go. We all know this. We drive home after an argument and we're still having it in our head. This is what Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of them are designed to do is to make sure that you're constantly feeling, I've got to just say one more thing. I just, then I'll, then I'll win this guy over. They're never going to fix it because they don't want to fix it. Because if they fix it, there is no social media.
0: Right. And it doesn't seem like there's an alternative out there, at least not one that has a large user base. As you wrote in the April 6 piece, I honestly don't know what happens to social media from here on. If our best hope is TikTok, then we might as well all hurl ourselves into the sun.
1: <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I, this is the thing. It's like, well, good, let's move to TikTok, which is the most algorithmic platform, which yes. has, has which is 100% algorithm and brilliant at it. Owned in large part by people close to the Chinese government. I mean, this is the freedom platform. Right. I mean, we are so screwed if that's our if that's our choice. It's like you can be in Elon world, you can be in Chinese government world. Hopefully the Saudi government will get will, will get heavily involved in launching another free speech-related. I mean, it's just a joke. It's just if you wrote this, if Charlie Brooker wrote this as, as an episode of Black Mirror, or if I wrote this as a novel. People would say, yeah, it's a bit on the nose. It's a bit of a, you're, you're just lampooning this stuff. It's not, you know, you're not serious, but it's happening.
0: Well, to be fair, Paul, you did write a novel with a lot of these elements. Again, the novel is 1414 14 Degrees. We talked about it on Tectonic a few months ago, and I'd recommend the interview to the listeners. I'll put a link on the playlist. The novel has a bit of news. I was happy to hear mm. you announce just today that you're coming out with an audiobook version of 1414 14 Degrees.
1: Yes. I, I was somewhat surprised about this as well, in the sense of I knew it existed and I knew that it was it was going towards, you know, in Audible and all these other platforms, but I didn't know when it was coming out. And I got a notification yesterday that it was that it was out. So yes, if if anybody is thinking, I'd really like to read that novel about somebody murdering so a broseopathic tech billionaires but reading just feels like too much work given that we're all dealing with the end of the world. Good news. Now you can listen to it as we all head towards the abyss. You can, as we commute towards the sun, um, you can listen to it on audible and I believe it's on iTunes and all those other platforms owned by the exact kind of people who I murder gleefully in my book.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I, I don't know if I can bring myself to link to an Amazon owned property on my playlist is there some independent alternative for audiobooks where we can yeah, still get I, that? Yeah,
1: I, there is. I, I, so again, I'm so bad at knowing how any of this stuff works. But my understanding is that it will be on all the usual independent platforms as well. So it, anywhere that you can, and I. I'm, again, I'm so bad at knowing what they are. But if you have a favorite platform, and let me say this as well. If somebody listening to this has a favorite platform, and they're trying to find 1414 14 degrees on it, and they can't, And if they email me, Paul at paulbradleycar.com, I will figure out how to, how to get it, or I will find them somebody who can, who can figure it out because it's certainly not exclusive to Audible. My hope is that it's available everywhere, but this does speak to a point, which I know you've been very big on, which is the monopoly that Amazon has over eBooks and, and audiobooks is insane and needs to be fixed because we, it cannot be this way that the majority of people increasingly are are consuming their books has to line Jeff Bezos pocket. It's madness.
0: Maybe we could end on a, a positive legi- note. yes, a, an unalloyed positive point <laughs> uh, unironically, you wrote about the benefits of getting off Twitter, and I want to thank you, Paul, for writing these columns in your newsletter, which I enjoy a lot, because after reading your columns, I put my Twitter account on hold. I didn't deactivate it yet, but I have not logged in for. By the time this airs, probably uh, over two weeks. Amazing. I felt like I was on Twitter too much as well. And I thought, Paul's making excellent points here. And now with Musk coming in, it's just, as you say, it's obvious. It's not going to get any better. It's going to get a lot worse. What am I doing? And one thing that helped push me over the edge to do that was your description of your experience in the benefits you got both – cognitively and just in your daily schedule. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah. And and I will say this is, I, it, it might be that Elon does us all a huge favor by giving people this sort of impetus to go, do I want to be part of this anymore? Because it felt for a long time like we had to, especially those of us who make a living entertaining or informing people, we felt like we had to be on it. And hopefully this gives people a reason to just, just that little bit of pause to say, do I though? And no, for me, what was incredible about it was how after a week or so of not being on it, I realized I had regained literally hours of my day because it isn't just the time you're physically typing out tweets. It's what, I, it's what I've said about the time you think about arguments you've had on Twitter, the time you think you, you spend crafting the tweet you're going to send next, so just the cognitive load of this constantly connected thing. And I realized I've regained hours of my my day and my weeks by no longer being on this. But also I'm able to focus and I'm able to be more creative because again, I don't have this constant drumbeat in my head and it hasn't done any harm whatsoever. What's or the dirty secret of Twitter that most people with a lot of followers will tell you is it long ago ceased to be a useful platform to promote things. Much better is a newsletter or you know, do, doing other other media things. Twitter—it's such noise now, and it's so algorithmically geared towards arguments and politics and nonsense that even before Elon Musk took it over, it ceased to be a good way to actually promote yourself or or get into good, and useful conversations. And I've found myself with the newsletter returning to what what's great is especially that that thing about Twitter. In fact, ironically or fittingly, I got so many emails from readers long detailed complex emails from people with full of thoughts and sentences and clauses many of whom I didn't agree with I got one but there was one in particular that stood out for me and I think this is really telling is so I obviously wrote something quite critical of Elon Musk and I got this um response from somebody that just said you're an idiot and I responded to that email and I said well thank you for your considered feedback um you know obviously i uh, you're an idiot. I'm going to unsubscribe. And I said, obviously, I hope you don't unsubscribe, but it is entirely all right. And I just sent a polite response. This person had emailed me and I responded. And he responded a few minutes later with a much longer email, essentially apologizing and saying, you know, I hadn't really registered that this was going to a real person. And I appreciate you responding so sort of like calmly. And I'm actually going to stick, probably keep subscribing. But first I want to tell you why I disagree with you. And we ended up in this 10, probably 10, 15 email back and forth between us. And we realized at the end of it, guess what? We actually weren't that far apart. And it seems to me that this is what we've all lost track of because of Twitter. Is we're actually most of us, most of us. There are crazies and there are bigots and everything and extremists out there. Most of us are not that far apart in this stuff. Even the people who love Elon and love their Teslas are not that far apart from those of us who are worried about what he's going to do for Twitter. And so any format email newsletters and podcasts to an extent, places where we can actually have a conversation of more than 160 characters. I hope Elon doing this forces people to take a step back from Twitter and start exploring those things because we shouldn't cut ourselves off or isolate ourselves. It's not about that. Getting back to a place where we can actually allow ourselves room to think and discuss and debate. Hopefully that comes out of this and we'll we'll see. Hopefully before we reach that end of the world point that unfortunately I worry
0: we're shuffling towards. (laughs) Brighter days ahead.
1: Yes, I hope
0: so. More discursive days. (laughs) You're all rainbows and spring
1: breezes, Paul. I am. I am. I'm I'm different brands of washer detergent. That's what I am. (laughs) Summer Meadows and Linen.
0: Well, it's, again, such a pleasure to have you back on the show. And I hope you'll come back again soon, next time you have something timely. Anytime. And uh, intelligent, as all of your writing is. Paul Bradley Carr, thanks so much for being back on Tectonic. Thank you, Mark. tuning in. You're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 15 or so minutes of the show. And then I want you to stay tuned for another great episode of The Arbitrarium with DJ Arb. We just heard my interview with journalist and novelist Paul Bradley Carr talking about Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. He has written a number of newsletter columns and his email newsletter talking about his reactions to the purchase and the outcomes in his own life and in his own mental state after he got off of Twitter. He completely deleted his Twitter account a couple of weeks ago, even before the purchase came through. And as I said, I, I was impressed that Paul saw the early signs of Musk's interest in the company and immediately took action. And as I said, I have been off of Twitter for a couple of weeks myself, although I have not deleted my account. Um, I'm gonna wait and see. I just wanted to have a a little trial period of not logging on. Uh, it's, It's hard to avoid Twitter altogether. There have been a couple of moments when someone has sent me a link to something someone posted and that's on Twitter but um at least I wasn't logged in and posting my own stuff and checking my own feed but for the most part I've been off and true to Paul's experience I have found that my attention has become a little more focused and it seems like I have a little more time in the day given that I'm I'm not going to the feed to to check what people are saying or if there's any reactions to the amazing thing that i posted <laughs> um and i know there's a cost uh someone on the i think p90 on the comment board said um hope hope you'll come back uh, be, you know to to post your own material on twitter and i, I understand and i appreciate that and i have gotten some benefits from seeing news stories that i've shared with you the listeners and i've even been able to contact a couple of the guests that I've gotten to the show um, through Twitter in a way that would have been difficult over email or going through some other, uh, some other method of trying to contact them. So if, if I do end up getting off permanently, I know there's a cost. There's always a cost <laughs> to, to, to making a move like this. But it's not, it's not, the question isn't, is there a cost at all? Of course there's a cost. The question is, do the benefits outweigh the cost? And what what Paul is saying is, for him, the benefits far outweigh the cost. And that was even before Musk, again, made the deal with the board. It was just even what Twitter was before Musk got involved was was so toxic and and draining of his attention and and his cognitive powers. It made sense for him to get off permanently. I also want to give a shout out to DJ Sheila B., who is really the pioneer here at the station <laughs> of getting off of social media completely uh, she um she deleted all of her accounts, I think it was a couple of years ago, and I was so impressed and i've and I've said this before on the show she she went all the way. I was unable to do that. I still have my Twitter account, as I say I haven't deleted it yet, but she deleted everything. she went cold turkey. And uh, she, I believe, has been doing well since then. And so, Sheila, I appreciate your leadership, and, and it's inspiring to me. And I have kept you in mind as I have put my own Twitter account on pause. And um, I do recommend that everyone listen to Sheila on Fridays from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. here at WFMU. Her show, Sophisticated Boom Boom, Boom is outstanding week to week, and I recommend it. Um, I also want to say hello to station manager Ken Friedman, who wants to remind us, uh, let's not forget that Musk does not own Twitter yet, and his deal could very easily collapse prior to closing. And that's true. One place, uh, or one thing I read suggested that a deal like this could take months. It could take up to six months for all of the hoops to be jumped through and all the papers to be signed and so on. And so it is true. This This is not a done deal yet. Um one person online today said it, it's it's not so much a purchase as it is an option to purchase. So the board and musk have come to an agreement in in which they have an option to do this deal and if either side backs out, I think they owe a billion dollars, I think is is the agreement. So if Musk decides he's he gets bored uh by this this deal and he wants to go um create some chaos elsewhere in in the next month or two then he can just back out and just pay them a a a measly billion dollars what's a billion dollars to the world's richest man so it's possible it could it could fall through all of this is just conjecture of what could happen if and when elon musk finally takes control but I thought in, in Motherboard, this, uh, this online uh, uh, website from Vice, uh, there was a, an interesting analysis and an important um, contribution made by uh, Edward Angueso uh, Jr. Who writes, out, who writes a piece pointing out that billionaires already own so many of the media and platforms that we use. And this is, it, it's, it's, in, in other words, it's not just Musk. This is just one part of a larger trend that is not healthy for our society. Uh, he writes, the world's richest man will soon own Twitter. The second richest man, Jeff Bezos, owns the Washington Post. Two of the ten richest men, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, own Google, which, don't forget, is, is a publisher. It's one of the world's largest publishers Google is. And, and, and Google also owns YouTube, which has its own incredibly toxic algorithm uh, running that business. And then uh, the, the column goes on to mention Mark Zuckerberg, one of the richest 20 men in the world, owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. And it continues, there are, of course, alternatives we should aspire to, and they don't include billionaires. There are an abundance of proposed models like public utilities, cooperatives different protocols and so on but at the moment our discussion is limited to how platforms should be designed financed and governed and what what he's pointing out which i completely agree with is that we have this trend of of consolidated money and power in, in these oligarchs from Silicon Valley, buying up all of our media platforms. And of course, someone like Musk will say, oh, it's, it's, it's all about free speech. Or Zuckerberg will say, oh, it's all about connecting people. All that is a, is a load of bull, all of it. These guys are consolidating their power. It's concentrated power and money in the top 0.0001% of, of the world in terms of, of wealth and influence. And that is no way to run a democracy. That is no way to build a society where people have a voice. Uh, just, just completely forget everything that, that Musk said about free speech and just look at the inequality and wealth between, between Musk and the rest of society. It's, it's insane for someone to have that much influence and to be able to, to plunk down $44 billion, even if it's not worth it. Uh, to to plunk down that amount of money for this this megaphone, this toxic megaphone, is just wrong. And we really should be spending time on different kinds of models, like cooperatives, or maybe turning some internet services into public utilities. And yes, as people have mentioned on the playlist, we need regulation. (laughs) That's something that I have brought up so many times I've had whole shows on regulation of course we need regulation one of the one of the first things we should do is is roll back section 230 from the CDA the Communications Decency Act, which gives these publishers immunity from the laws that newspapers and magazines and, and TV networks have to abide by Facebook. And and Twitter and Google's YouTube, they can amplify the worst kind of racism and and hate, and and genocidal content and and calls for for violence, all of which they have done and continue to do. Go back and listen to my interview with Gretchen Peters just a few uh, a few months ago about the criminal behavior that we're seeing from these uh, companies because they have this uh unchecked immunity due to section 230 that that just needs to be just needs to be rolled back maybe it's blown up entirely or maybe it's uh, amended in some way there are different proposals on the table but it has to be changed so yes of course we need regulation of course we need regulation it's not simply a case of of people making uh individual choices although we we do have the option like DJ Sheila B to make our own choices. But in addition to that, we are gonna need some collective responses, both regulation and I hope um, more investment in community institutions, much like this radio station here. One reason I love WFMU is because just by existing, it resists this, this, this horrible uh, toxic logic that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are bringing to our society saying that power has to be concentrated and only billionaires can make any kind of meaningful decisions. No, WFMU uh, exists and is proof that, that community organizations that live for something other than profit can still survive and can still make a difference in this world. And, um, and, and look, we, we have the, the chat board at WFMU.org, which is so much better than the the toxic sludge that you get on Twitter. So already we have something that is more meaningful and more truly valuable than that empire of junk that, that Musk just spent $44 billion on. As Handy Haversack put it on the chat board, it's figured out, the solution is figured out. You make algorithmic amplification illegal, you enforce monopoly laws, and you force so-called platforms to acknowledge their responsibility as publishers not to spread hate, falsehood, and lies for profit. Both Bada and Bing. Thank you, Handy Haversack, for bringing the truth to the comment board. That is about the time we have uh, for this evening. There's a couple of other uh, pointers on the playlist at wfmu.org and if you have more comments uh, you can email me at mark at wfmu.org and you heard paul bradley cars email during the interview if you want to email him places where he can put his uh, the new uh, audiobook for fourteen fourteen degrees other than audible which is owned by amazon which i want you to avoid in fact may i just say your homework until next week is pretty simple. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook and whatever you do, get off Google. And can we add this week, please? Also, trash Twitter. Thanks again to David and London for putting together the infographic for our uh, Walk on the Wild Side walking journeys themed show with Paul Salopek last week. You can find it on the playlist at wfmu.org or at Tectonic T E C H tonic.fm. And you have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockin County, and 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And you know what? Speaking of David in London, did you know he's in a band? It's called Dayona. And I came across a song by Dayona, Thanks Apart, to David in London, that I'd like to share with you this evening as we go out. Please stay tuned. For The Arbitrarian with DJ Arb, let's give a listen to the song White Web. See you next week, everybody.
1: Welcome to the Arbitrarium, capital of the country of Arbsurdistan. I am your president, Arb.
2: There was once an old house I lived in for a year or so. moving day, I entered the house and immediately felt uneasy. I began to search for the cause of my uneasiness. It was not long before I discovered a large closet on the second floor. It had two different doors and connected both to my bedroom and the hallway. This in itself was not disconcerting, however, it was quickly apparent that the closet was ruled by the spirit of a pig. The pig had not been informed of the sale of the house and was unhappy. To persuade the pig to leave, I introduced him to my pet cow, Belinda. Pig left, and I never again felt.
3: See you, see you, see you. please. Becoming the
2: active listening, the possible outside the remembered and ways of remembering. A naive idealism of self, truth, and it, an unaware ego in a self reflecting world. In the beginning, the great self found nothing but itself. And its first word was This am I?